please make a donation to the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. You'll find the link to our GoFundMe campaign and an explanation of how to donate by mail on our website, bobcudmore.com. Hi, this is Bob Gumson. I wrote my memoir in 2021. It's called In Blind Sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn, with love, music, and mischief. I live in Albany. I'm here today to talk with Bob about my life that's described in my book. It is available on Amazon.com in Kindle and in paperback. And if you're in the Albany area, you can look up my name, Bob Gumson. I'll be glad to sign a copy I have on hand. I worked in the not-for-profit field as a state employee managing a lot of programs that served the rights of people with disabilities, and I myself have been blind since childhood. Born in the mid-1950s, Bob Gumson, as he said, grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. As a young boy, uh, Bob loved to take part in sports and games with his neighborhood friends. Following a routine kindergarten eye exam, Bob and his family learned that he had a progressive eye disease that would render him completely blind by the time he reached his early teens. Uh, Bob's uh, disability would present many challenges, but it never prevented him uh, from doing exciting and purposeful things. Bob Gumson today lives in Albany, as he said, author of a memoir in blind sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn, with love, music, and mischief, published in 2021. I don't remember this. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat older than you are, but I don't remember this uh, test they gave you in kindergarten. Do you remember the actual test? I kind of do. They, they had a screen up and a projector, and it would show the letter E on all different angles, on its side, backwards, um, in, in, in capital, and then in smaller print. And as you went down this chart, as it would, an eye chart, you'd have to say, I see, you know, E to the right, E upside down. And that's how they would tell, as you went down the chart, how far your distance vision was. In fact, you said you had quite a parade of doctors from then on in your in your youth. Oh yes, my family exhausted every resource known to man. That I was, uh, I went through probably thirty to forty different doctor visits from uh, all the way from New York, where we lived, down to Baltimore, Maryland, to the John Hopkins uh, Hospital. Um, every expert and everybody had a slightly different opinion. And then one day, one doctor in New York City finally confronted my parents and, and me. I guess I was only a little boy, but they, I heard them say that I probably lose my vision over time. Now, what did you think about that, uh, or, or as you remember it today? Back then, I didn't know what to think. It seemed kind of scary a little bit, but I, it wasn't... It, it, I didn't have the loss, so 
I was still seeing things. So it kind of was like hard to put my head around it and totally imagine what life could be like. I guess as time went on, the fears that my parents had about what life could be or the unknowns of what life could be started to manifest in me a little bit because I, I, I heard their fears. I understood from their emotions, their 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 ways of treating me, um, maybe with, you could say, with kid gloves at times. As time went on, those gloves came off and they kind of gave me, and well, they took an understanding of vision loss. They kind of t uh, decided um, to teach me how to be very independent but early on I'd hold hands more than probably other kids hold their elbow more than other kids they'd always be watchful over me and you did all sorts of unusual things for a person who's blind including and I, we got to get this in I think that you uh, drove a car Oh, yes, there were interesting things. Well, I'll say, too, since I don't think you had an opportunity yet, Bob, to read my book, I hitchhiked across America with a buddy from college, just the two of us. Of course, he could see, but the two of us were out on the road, and in 1978, we hitchhiked across America for about six weeks. But, yes, I, I, I got behind the wheel of a car, and the story in my book talks about how um, I was in the parking lot of a well-known pub in Binghamton where I went to college to get my undergraduate degree in sociology and political science. And um, I, my friend had a Oldsmobile from his parents, a big Cutlass 88, and he wanted me to pull it out of the parking lot after we had a night of having a few bent elbows that evening. And um, I got behind the wheel. I, I had pressure, it had pressure brakes, um, and I didn't know how to use them. Every time I'd start the car, I'd stop it with the brakes. And after a while, my friend Jim stood outside the open driver's door. After a while, the officer in the region, who loved to get college kids in trouble, he came over and he asked me for my license and registration. <laughs> And I'm, obviously, I knew I didn't have one, but being the clown I am at times, I pulled out my wallet. My friend Jim was starting to crack up, uh, laughing hysterically. I pulled out my American Foundation for the Blind half-fare travel card for bus travel, and I gave it to him. And the guy looked at it. Officer put two fingers up in front of my eyes, back and forth to make sure I wasn't seeing them. And then in a loud, angry voice, he said, Are you Christ crazy? Get him out of that seat. And my friend Jim was just about on the floor. And then the officer topped it off by saying, I should arrest you. I could arrest you. He says, but they'll never believe me back at the precinct. Jim was the same uh, fellow that you went across country with, right? Yeah. Yes, Jim was a good roommate of mine in my apartments off campus, and yes, we traveled together, and we had many adventures in California. We we stayed in one night. We actually spent in the deep um, back area of Golden Gate Park. We were we found ourselves homeless for the night in the city, and some 
street people showed us a little area where they shelter at night, and we slept in Golden Gate Park. We were on. We we were all over the place. We were in Friday Harbor, off the in the Puget Sound, visiting friends of that Jim knew from his work in um, in West Glacier National Park. We were in Oregon. Um, we we just had a, a grand old trip. Um, one little side story was that we got a ride once of only about a hundred miles. This gives you an idea of what America, the difference in America these days. About 100 miles from this woman who was going to visit her boyfriend, who was the mayor of Independence, Kansas. So we get, we, we get in the car, and we're with her, and we're chatting up and having a grand old time. We get to Independence, and she said, you know, my, my friend has a car. I'd really love it if you guys would enjoy the area. I'll loan you my car overnight, and if you, I'll give you my number. And sure enough, we we saw the area. Jim drove her car, and we returned it. That's the way things were back, even in the 70s. And when you were younger, not to back up on the story too much, but you uh, did your best, and your friends did your best, to include you in the life of the neighborhood. It sounds like you grew up in a kind of an ethnic Jewish uh, section of, of Canarsie in 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 Brooklyn, but uh, they did all kinds of things like to make it more doable for you to play sports, for example. They would adapt games, keep them in smaller areas of space so that I can keep track of where people were. But the one thing that I recall with the most fondness was um, they would make me the quarterback when we play street football, Mississippi Touch, and... um, uh, I'd be quarterback for both teams, and we'd work out plays where the best uh, um, uh, catchers, uh, the, the the best ends, uh, would go out, and they'd tell me, I'll take 20 steps to the right and cut straight up the middle. I'll holler, throw the ball, and that's what we'd do. We'd, we'd come, come up with all these plays, and I would just toss the ball, and some of the great... Uh, players would catch it and I was able to play that game and that type of game until kids got a little too I'd say competitive and then I'd instead of being the quarterback for both teams in my heyday I'd be the last one picked for a team because I was really not able to compete very well but that same fellow who would catch the ball in the air um, his name was Jay fabulous young athlete he would make he'd be quarterback back in, in in the days of competition and when no one would cover me because i couldn't see the catch he'd tell me put my arms out and he'll throw the ball and, uh, and i can just catch it right in my hands like a basket at least someone covered me in the field in your title to the to the book in blind sight you include the word canarsie you're proud of coming from canarsie why is that oh there's a mystique about canarsie you can see that there's 17,000 of us on the canarsie facebook page there's a certain street savviness that comes out of living in brooklyn and canarsie and we um we started the neighborhood the neighborhood grew up around us so we have a real connection to it there was a very active 
as you mentioned earlier, Bob, street life growing up in Canarsie. Kids all knew each other. Families were all moving in. Um, you can go down our block, and there were probably on one street probably 15 families with anywhere from one to three or four children. So we'd be pouring out on the street at night. We'd be up at the ice cream vendors as they came through. All the trucks with their different foods or or games or we even had a fellow who came through our neighborhood with a um a food truck with a candy in the at the dashboard and he'd provide all the women would come out to get their bread and and um we'd go up in the front and get our candy necklaces or air balsam with airplanes we had, we had a real connection to the neighborhood of canarsie another th- uh, word you put in the title is music you really love music I do. I grew up in music. My parents played old blues and jazz, and uh, Al Jolson was probably the first musician to get into my ear as a kid. But as time went on, I went on to popular music, to rock and roll and folk and blues and jazz and country. And I chased uh, probably somewhere over 500 or more live music concerts. I amassed a music collection of my own of probably 5,000 CDs and 1,000 vinyl records. And since retiring from the state education department in 2017, I've been learning how to play guitar. I never picked up an instrument since I had a few lessons as a kid and didn't practice, so my parents uh, stopped them rather quickly. But as an adult now, I'm trying to make up for uh, the 50-year or more gap since my last lesson. And it, 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 I have a lot. Of, I'm very humbled by really good musicians. Um, yes, I do love music. My wife would say, Pat would say that I live in a milieu of music. I have it on at least low in the background. One last thing I'll say about it is I often read books out loud on a digital machine that will speak them. So I have one earplug in an ear at night reading a book, and I leave the radio on with music in the background. Bob Gumson uh, with us. He's author of the memoir In Blind Sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn, with love, music, and mischief. Uh, I hate to put it so bluntly, but were you, especially when you were young or maybe even today, kind of a wise-ass? I've changed a lot. I've grown up a bit. My wife would say I still have a child within me, but yes, I, I kind of was. I was the class clown at times when the vision loss was bothering me and I didn't know what to do with it. I'd be the sixth grade kid that would be thrown out of class or stuck in another class. And as time went on as a young adult and I was uh, trying to find my place in this world, I did uh, indulge in use of, of weed and, 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 other, and other drugs, and fortunately, I don't think I was ever quote-unquote addicted, but I did have some very close encounters, um, took very risky, did some very risky behaviors. A good friend of mine who read my book, his wife read it after him, and she said, the one thing that Matt should tell me is that if I were Bob's parents, 
I would ground him for life. If I, what about your parents? I, again, I hate to put it in, in this way, but how, how could they afford this? They were very, it, I, I almost broke their, their bank and their dreams. My dad was a watchmaker. He repaired watches. He would get contract work from some of the department stores and shops in Manhattan and, 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 and the area. We were probably working class, blue collar family and, 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 and all my doctor visits and the medicines almost broke my father's uh, dreams for a middle-class life. It, it was not easy. He he would scrounge sometimes. I mentioned one place in the book where the ice cream man came out in our neighborhood and everybody was hovering around and I wanted an ice cream. My father said, um, I, I got to go get some change. And he disappeared into the house and stayed there long enough so the ice cream vendor left. He didn't even have enough change to buy me a pop. Um, it was very hard until um, I got on a path of, you know, treatment and after the surgeries that I had, I had five eye surgeries as a kid between age maybe eight and, and 12. Eventually, my dad ran a retail jewelry store when he moved to Florida with my mom and in the late 70s, and I think that finally turned the corner for him. But uh, all the years we lived in Brooklyn, we were borderline lower to middle class. What did these operations do for you, or didn't they? They did not work. They, they attempted to try to stave off the progressive eye disease that was slowly killing my optic nerve. The surgeries were tried to do that, and the gazillion medications that I was given, and none of them worked. Maybe temporarily it, it, it stopped the progression, but it just continued. Um, they say today with medicine, modern medicine, I probably would have some vision loss, but I wouldn't have been totally blind. Back then, I was kind of a guinea pig and an experiment for some of the eye medicines and eye surgeries. I I did have some of the best surgeons in the in, in, in the field, ophthalmologists out of Columbia Presbyterian. I can't say they, they, they weren't the top notch, but I just was not uh, one who benefited that much from all of their procedures. But you went to college, you went to SUNY Binghamton, and also uh, got a master's degree at my alma mater, Boston University. Yes, I, I, I went to Boston University Sargent College of Allied Health Professions. I got that master's degree in 1979. Actually, I didn't say it in my book because it didn't happen then, but just this year, uh, Sargent College provided me with a lifelong professional achievement award for the work I've done in the field of disability rights and independent living and rehabilitation. And, um, yeah, I went to BU, and uh, it's funny, Binghamton University nowadays calls itself BU also. And um, after got, getting out of Boston University, I worked in the field of vocational rehabilitation. I helped people with all dis different disabilities to get back on a path or find their path to work. 
enjoy that very much before I got into administrative roles, first in Massachusetts and then in 1992, I came back to New York State, to Albany, to be the manager of the New York State Independent Living Services Program, where we had about $15 million of state money and provided that to not-for-profits known as independent living centers, 41 of them around New York State, and those are organizations that do advocacy and help people with disabilities live lives in the community out in their, on their own um, to the best of their ability to make choices and decide on how they want to live and where they want to live, help them deal with their benefits if they need them or, or, or work and have to deal with the, the impact work has on benefits. Um, but most of, importantly, the independent living center movement changes attitudes, environments, policies that promote in full integration of people with disabilities into everyday life. And that's what we did. The local organizations chose their own needs in their own areas and then developed uh, campaigns to change education, employment, the business community, even voting. Um, all, I'll, I'll just say this, that all my life as a blind person, it wasn't until the mid-2010s where I was able to go into a voting booth and press a few buttons and listen with a headset and make choices on my own without having somebody else looking over my shoulder of how I was voting. So I didn't have privacy in voting. Independent Living Centers and Disability Rights changed all that. The name of the book again is In Blind Sight from Canarsie, Brooklyn with Love, Music and Mischief. Uh, we're talking with uh, Bob Gumson, who lives in Albany, New York. Uh, let, let me just put in, because uh, I think we should, uh, the uh, Historian's Podcast is carried by RISE, a radio service for the blind and print disabled. Are you aware of those folks over to uh, WMHT? I've heard of it. I, I've, I've used radio reading services before. I don't these days because I could read a lot of things on my iPhone and get the news on the radio of my own and um, right on the phone. Well, we were just kind of going through your your life, and maybe I made it sound, or did we make it sound too jolly? You had troubles along the way. For example, at school, you uh, you had to pay people on your own to uh, read uh, texts that professors are talking about in the in class. It's a, com a, a combination of getting a little bit of funding to do so, and then to pay pay or or try to recruit volunteers um you know when i went to college there weren't any disability service offices yet they were just starting at college campuses kind of back when i went to elementary middle and secondary school we were just at the beginning of special education even then but in college i had to go around campus put up posters try to recruit people who would read my text to me and every once in a while a professor would come out with a new edition of one of their academic books that they'd want everybody to have at the last minute. So 
I'd have to get readers to read it to me um, rather quickly. Sometimes I can get some material on tape from an organization called Recordings for the Blind, but it often took months, so you had to have books way ahead of time to send to them to prepare. Nothing was really in Braille at all. I mean, if you think about Braille, it takes very long. It's very arduous to Braille out a, a book. And, and, and so either everything was spoken or everything was um, read to me out loud, uh, either on tape recorder or out loud. Your a story, I, I gather, or the, the novel, not the novel, the memoir, is... Uh, aimed at inspiring people, especially those with uh, disabilities. Uh, and your mantra is uh, strive, persevere, and overcome. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, no matter how many times and no matter whether you have a disability or not, life knocks you down. You just got to get up and get up and face it and do it and get past it and get on with life. Um, I mean, everybody has disabilities, whether they want to recognize them or not. There are obstacles that get in the way of everybody's life. My parents taught me that I don't have a handicap. I have a bunch of very different inconveniences, and I can get past all of them. So if you strive, if you persevere, you, you, you will do the same. My, I've taught my children that. My wife has seen me do that time and time again. I, I will just plug away and get through it. And, and now you're retired from your estate job? Yes, I, I retired in May of 2017 after 25 years in New York working for state ed and 12 and a half years working for the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. Put all of that behind me. I sometimes engage in disability-related activities, but most of the time these days I spend with family. My wife um, has 11 grandchildren. We're a second marriage, so uh, she has five children. I have three, three daughters. My daughters live in China and in Colorado and in Tennessee, so we have a lot of visiting. We have uh, my, my wife's oldest, uh, one of her children, um, lives in Ireland, so we travel. Um, I play guitar, as I mentioned earlier. I try to learn how to play. And we winter in Anna Maria Island, Florida. We, we are snowbirds. We leave the weather, so I don't have to worry about um, a plow company emptying my stairs and driveway, but actually we do have a handyman that does that while we're away, so it looks like someone lives here. But I'm gone usually for up to five months out of the year at, to Anna Maria Island. We love beaches, um, so I travel um, there, and in the summer we vacation um, locally out on the Cape and um, islands, and um, I exercise, I read, um, and I cook. Oh, good. And you're also in the Disability Rights Hall of Fame. What is that? New York State started about five, six years ago a peer-selected um, nomination process for people that have made some of the biggest impacts on New York's disability community. And I'm honored that um, I, ha I was the first um, living state person, not 
uh, disability activist from the not-for-profit to be uh, inducted. I was inducted in 2001, um, 2021 to the New York State Disability Rights Hall of Fame by a jury of my peers, and that's so meaningful to me that they they felt that the 25 years run I had with State Ed made a big difference for New Yorkers. Bob Gumson is author of In Blind Sight from Canarsie, uh, Brooklyn, with Love, Music, and Mischief. Uh, that's his um, memoir. It's available uh, locally, and he'd be happy to uh, sell it to you. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Please help us with our GoFundMe campaign. You'll find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, to GoFundMe, or send us a check made out to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302.